0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's our final show in our February series on the heart, that being Valentine's Heart Month, And today we're going to talk about the end result. Now, we started off talking about the Ornish diet, reversing heart disease. We've talked about electrical issues like atrial fibrillation. We've talked about cholesterol and its effects on the body. We've talked about heart valves. Today we're going to talk about the end result of all of that. Stents, when do you get them, versus surgery, who gets that instead, and how do risk factors play a role in determining that answer? How does high blood pressure, diabetes, and more affect what we do for your heart? Dr. Stephen Chan is in the studio from Kaiser Permanente, and we're going to be talking today about what happens when you go to the emergency room, when you're told you're having a heart attack, and how do we know if you need stents, and what happens after that? Now, as always, if you want to be part of our conversation, phone lines are open. You can join us at 941-3689, Free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Chan, welcome to The Body Show.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you here. Today, you were doing angioplasties and putting in stents today, so after saving some lives, we've got you to help educate our people who are listening to us about what else they can do to help save their own lives. Speaking of, you know, I witnessed something interesting and curious not that long ago. And, you know, before we talk about stents and stuff, let's talk about what brings people to the hospital. So obviously symptoms of heart attacks bring people to the hospital. I witnessed somebody who unfortunately had uh, fallen down was in the process of getting CPR. And so, you know, luckily some bystanders had gotten up and said, hey, I'm gonna do the CPR for this individual. They had an automatic external defibrillator. We've talked about those on the show before and we'll do it again soon. And they had this, this particular individual who had the defibrillator pads placed on their body and someone was rigorously doing CPR and the patient seemed to wake up. Now, ambulance was called. When a patient wakes up, what should, What should the people in the community do if they are assisting that patient?
1: Uh, I would say if the patient is waking up and the person is doing CPR, the CPR should stop first. Um, It's very uncomfortable to the patient and they don't really need it. If if someone wakes up, it means that they actually have enough blood flowing to their brain that they can think and wake up. So then you'd pretty much at that point stop CPR and check to see if they have a pulse.
0: All right, now what's the best place to check for a pulse?
1: Uh, You can essentially check pulse either in the wrist, or you could check it in the neck. Um, you can check it in the groin area too. There's various places. Um, essentially, anywhere there's you know an artery, you could feel a pulse. Um, oftentimes, the easiest place is the neck because you're right there above the chest during the CPR.
0: Sure. And we often see that on, now, not that we should base our medical care on TV, but we often see that on TV. They go checking around the neck area. Do they feel anything? And if you were to check it on your wrist, don't use your thumb. Is that right? Just use your index finger, middle finger?
1: Yes, yes. The, the key is to use your index fingers or middle fingers because your thumb has a pulse. Actually, even your fingers have a pulse too. But just because your thumb is bigger, sometimes you can feel your own pulse and you could mistakenly think that the person has a pulse when it's really your own pulse.
0: And it's probably going really fast if you're in the process of saving somebody out there trying to do CPR. So.
1: Right. And the pulse, to, the place to check on the wrist is the part closer on the th- kind of thumb side of the patient because, um, you know, there's, there's actually blood vessels on both sides of the wrist, but the one closer to the thumb side called the radial side is where you check the pulse.
0: All right. And if you've had, now we'll talk about surgery in just a bit. If you've had radial artery grafts, go looking for that other one. Correct. All right. But we'll talk about graphs and stuff in just a few moments. So let's just say that somebody winds up in the emergency room. So they've been brought by an ambulance. They're in the emergency room. Some people think that the only symptoms of a heart attack are chest pain. And that's it. You know pain in your chest? No problem. That's not necessarily the case. Is that right?
1: Yes. That's a very important point because a lot of people, even people who are having a heart attack, they'll they'll say, I never knew that was a heart attack because it didn't feel like pain. They'll describe it as either pressure or a tightness. Um, that's really the most common description. It's not really a, people will say it's not really a pain. Sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's not a pain. It's just a pressure or a tightness across the chest or the back or the, maybe something going down the arm. And, and the truth is in some people, it's not even that in the chest. Sometimes it's in the jaw or it could be in the head or the neck, um,
0: Stomach problems, too. Oh, yes. You could just feel indigestion and be like, I don't know why. I thought I didn't happen to have a problem, and I didn't eat that pepperoni pizza last night, so why am I having these troubles? So indigestion. Right,
1: and patients with diabetes especially, sometimes they have some neuropathy, which means that the diabetes has affected their nerves such that they can't feel things. Um, They will sometimes not get any sensation at all except for maybe some shortness of breath or some dizziness or some nausea. So sometimes heart attacks can kind of masquerade as, you know, other symptoms that are not classic in terms of chest discomforts.
0: Well, and I think that's a really important point to make, which is if you have diabetes and you have nerve damage, and the easiest way to know if you do or not is do you have some problems with tingling in your hands and your feet? Because if you get to the point where you have those sorts of symptoms, you have neuropathy related to your diabetes. Now you don't have to have it that bad, but if you have those nerves damaged, they can be damaged to your heart as well. And if you can't sense your heart, you may not have the chest pain.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. For those who do get the chest pain, I probably would say, you know, put a couple plugs in there, being on the receiving end, which is that, you know, number one, if you have chest pain or tightness that you think is a heart attack, don't drive yourself to the emergency room.
0: Yeah, that's not a good plan. Yes,
1: because sometimes with a heart attack, you can, like, faint or lose consciousness, and then you would crash a car, and that would be even worse. Um, Definitely dial 911, and the emergency, you know, people will come and transport you in. Um,
0: and they can start some medicine in the ambulance to help you. So if you think, yeah, it'll take, you know, 20 minutes for them to come to me, but, and then another 20 minutes to get to the ER versus I could get there in 20 minutes, you don't realize that in this situation, an ambulance, we've all seen them, is able to cut through traffic and they can also administer life saving medicine. Yes, and
1: plus the um, emergency personnel sometimes can do a quick test for your heart called an EKG, just put some kind of stickers and electrodes on your chest, and that can tell them for sure if you're having a heart attack or a, a serious heart attack at that time. And if it really is what we call, you know, one of these, you know, STEMIs, then you know, every minute counts. You know, we, we have the saying in the cardiologist that minutes is myocardium. For every minute that ticks, that's some heart muscle that's dying, and the sooner you get in to get that fix, you know, the better.
0: Minute is muscle. You got it. Okay, now you mentioned the word STEMI, and when people come to the emergency room, we do an EKG, and there are certain areas of the EKG that we look at. And one of the classic areas that we look at, and if people can think about, you know, that little blip that they often see, again, why am I so obsessed with television? I don't know. But you know, that little blip you might have seen on TV, on the monitor, and you think about what that entails, there's a particular part of that EKG called the ST segment. And that's when we talk about, when we're talking about ST elevation. So what does the ST segment refer to electrically in the heart? And when it's elevated, why do we get worried?
1: Right. So the ST segment refers I mean, I don't want to be too technical, but it's called the repolarization part of the heart. So the it's heart. It's like the recovery. It's the recovery phase, exactly. And the heart is electrical. You know, it has muscles, but it's also got an electrical circuit. Every time the heart beats, that electrical circuit depolarizes. And in order for the muscle to recover, that's the ST segment where the muscle is recovering. And essentially, Uh, that's usually, you know, flat, like a baseline, we call it. And if there's an injury, like meaning if the heart is dying or the muscle is not acting correctly, then that segment will go up or down. And up is a concerning thing for, you know, heart attack in terms of having an actual blockage in the blood vessel.
0: And so if it goes down, that could be?
1: That could also be blockage. Um, Down, we call it ischemia, meaning the heart muscle is not getting enough blood. Up means infarction, which means the heart muscle is not getting any blood. It's so actually dying heart muscle. That's
0: the big difference, is that if it's getting a little bit of blood, okay, we've got some time. If it's getting no blood flow, big time trouble.
1: Right, because I, I tell you know patients the heart is like a muscle, so it needs its own oxygen and blood supply, and that's supplied by the coronary arteries, which are like the pipes. And, um, and if there's a blockage in those pipes, such that there's no blood flowing, then that muscle that that pipe feeds is essentially dying. It's like suffocating.
0: sooner you open it, the better.
1: sooner you open it, the better.
0: So that's when people wind up in the emergency room. If it's find out that they're having this complete lack of blood flow, then an evaluation is done, and it's determined should they go to the cath lab catheterization lab where you can actually take a look to see if there's actual blockages. Now you usually get called to the emergency room I would imagine where somebody's having these signs of a heart attack and you're given the task of determining do they need to go to the catheterization lab or not? What kind of criteria do you use for that?
1: Uh, yes, excellent question. So this kind of goes to the point about not driving yourself because if the, emerg- if the emergency personnel out in the field get the EKG and it shows a STEMI, what we were just calling the ST that elevation. because no MI, blood flow in no that area. Flow, okay. No blood flow by t- definition means got to go to the cardiac cath lab to get that blood so open as soon as possible. And actually we have this benchmark whereby we want to get that open within 90 minutes, meaning the time the person arrives in the emergency room until the time we have up into the operating room with the catheters, and we can describe this in detail into the blood vessels, putting a little balloon inside the blockage to open it up. We want to get that done within 90 minutes or less, because the sooner we do it, the time is muscle. Time is muscle. And the key is that the emergency personnel can sometimes do the EKG. If they find that it is indeed one of these heart attacks, they can call ahead to the hospital, say, We have one of these heart attack patients that are going to need to go to the cath lab. And they will actually call you know, the like myself, an interventional cardiologist even before the patient arrives. So if we say, we're 20 minutes out from the hospital, then I'll get my car if I'm at home or it's at night and start driving in. So sometimes we can actually arrive at the same time as a patient to save that precious 20 minutes of commute time.
0: So that really is a reason why don't drive yourself to the hospital if you think you're having a heart attack. And you shouldn't have your family members drive you either.
1: You shouldn't have the families drive you either because if you were to lose consciousness and you're in the car, you know there's really no way to do CPR when you're in the passenger seat.
0: So really, it's a 911 thing. Just don't mess around. Correct. Okay. So let's say that you get a call that somebody is in the emergency room and they think that there's a problem with this blood flow. Are there particular risk factors that might make you more concerned about an individual? Who gets these ST-elevated heart attacks? Who gets these really bad blood flow blockages? It's not just everybody. Certain percentages of heart attacks are the really bad ones. Is there anything common about that group of individuals?
1: Um, I would say that in terms of heart attacks in general, there are definitely, you know, well-known risk factors. Uh, They don't necessarily differentiate between the types of heart attacks, uh, but the traditional risk factors, you know, number one in my list would be like smoking. That's avoidable. You know, people can quit smoking. People who smoke are at clearly a higher risk of heart attack. Diabetes can be, you know, risk factor, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, diet, you know, sedentary lifestyle, all of these family history, sometimes just genetics, you know, can contribute. Those are you know, the traditional Those risk are the, factors.
0: What, when you hear about, hey, we have somebody, it's a guy, he's like 55, he's sedentary, he doesn't exercise, he's got the diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and he smokes, you're like, you know, this is probably going to be a heart problem.
1: Right. Um, the decision that you're asking about in the emergency room about who goes to the cardiac cath lab right. is not necessarily much based on the risk factors as um, a, their EKG, like we were just talking about. That's does that it, elevation, it have elevation sure. But even if it doesn't have the elevation, it doesn't mean they're not having a heart attack. You could have a heart attack that does not have elevation. We call that a non-ST elevation okay. uh, MI. And in that case, the way we diagnose that is by a blood test called a troponin. And there's a blood test that is very sensitive to any sort of damage to the heart. So a heart attack, by definition, means some heart muscle is being damaged or is dying. And there's an enzyme called troponin, which is part of the heart muscle fibers, and it's only contained inside the heart muscle cells. It really should not be circling out in the bloodstream. If it's detectable in the bloodstream, by definition, it means some heart muscle there is leaking, and it's not healthy. And people who have a elevated troponin, we think, we, we consider them. The higher a heart the attack.
0: number, sure, they're having a problem.
1: Right, and so that's connotes that they must have, they could have some blockage, and those are the ones we tend to take more urgently. Uh, to the cardiac catheterization laboratory to look at their blood vessels.
0: And the idea of going into the catheterization lab, the purpose is that you can really, you know, a lot of times we look at these different surrogate markers. So we look at stress testing. Does somebody pass their stress test? Therefore, people have the mistaken impression that if you pass your stress test, you have no blockages. Now you can still have blockages, but maybe not enough to affect blood flow to your heart. there are other surrogate markers, but the only real true way to know if you have a blockage or not is to actually take a look directly at the artery.
1: That's correct. In fact, uh, you know, nowadays, especially in our American society with the way we, we live, most of us live, I, I people venture to say almost everybody at certain age will have some degree of blockage. Not just, you know, the question is not if people have blockages, like how bad is the blockage? And um, you know, oftentimes we'll tell patients, you know, the blood vessels to the heart are kind of like the freeway uh, driving on on H1. Yeah,
0: and that's never blocked.
1: <laughs> and so let's say there's five lanes of freeway, you know, if, if, you know, the shoulder gets blocked off, you know, usually no big deal. If one lane gets blocked off, sometimes there's a bit of a jam. Um, but clearly, if, you know, mo- enough lanes get blocked off, then... There'll be a big traffic jam, or at least the traffic won't flow, or the blood won't sure, flow. Sure. And
0: like we've seen a couple of years ago, there was some big shutdown of H1 because of damage to a bridge. I mean, I remember that was a couple of years ago, and my staff said they didn't get home until like 10 or 11 at night because they literally closed the freeway. No lanes were open.
1: <laughs> so essentially, if the freeway is completely closed, that would be the STEMI. That would be the that would be your elevated. MI. You go e- right to the Super time. emergency. Okay. Get that o- freeway open.
0: And so when you're going to bring someone to the cath lab, describe it for me, because some people think it looks just like a, a lab or an office, and other people think it's the operating room. What is this room physically like?
1: Uh, it's not. It's, it's kind of like an operating room in the sense that it's enclosed and it's clean, and it's not. It's sterile in a sense, um, but it's not exactly an operating room. In the center of the room is actually an x-ray table called a fluoroscopy table, and the patient would lie flat on this table, and the table does move, and there's a x-ray machine that rotates above the table, and that can be controlled to d- different angles so that you can see the heart in different angles. And what would happen during one of these procedures is that the patient is placed on the table, they're draped in some sterile drapes, and the area that we go through is usually either the wrist or the groin area, meaning by the leg, why would you pick one over the other? Um, traditionally, it was the leg was used because it's a bigger blood vessel and it's probably easier. And I think just out of uh, convention, people use the leg. Uh, actually, nowadays, most places, including at at Kaiser, we go to, you know routinely through the wrist as the first approach, just because the wrist uh, is easier for the patient uh, in the fact that. After the procedure, they don't have this hole in their leg. And they, have and to they let,
0: don't have to lay down they for extra hours. Exactly.
1: Short. Instead, there's a little hole in the wrist. And essentially, we just put a little uh, plastic band that fits over the wrist over the hole. And it just kind of squeezes that to make sure it doesn't bleed. And that site can heal uh, so while the patient is sitting up and even walking around. Um, so what we do is we put a little tube through that little the blood vessel in the wrist, the radio ar- radial artery. And that is threaded up into the heart. And through that little hollow tube, we inject some liquid called contrast that lets us look at the blood vessels under x-ray.
0: So you can see it when they're moving the x-ray around. You can actually see these arteries so that if you see the contrast, it's open. And if you see an area where there's no contrast and there should be, nothing got through. There's a blockage.
1: That's correct. Essentially, the contrast lets you see the outline, the inside outline of the blood vessels. And you know, if the blood vessel is nice and smooth and wide open, then we'll see that if it's irregular, like, mean, there are lumps and bumps. Those lumps and bumps are usually cholesterol deposits. And it's depending on how bad or how severely you know, encroaching on the inside those deposits are, that uh, gives us an idea of how much problem that might be causing for the heart.
0: And depending on how much of a problem, sometimes you can fix it.
1: Absolutely. So usually if it's just, say, a single blockage and it's just in one spot, then we will just fix it. And especially if it's causing a heart attack in that, in that situation. So we'll,
0: how do you, quote, fix it?
1: Uh, that's called a procedure called angioplasty and stenting. Uh, And angioplasty is where we put a tiny little balloon uh, on a catheter, and we put it inside that little tube that's in the wrist, and we thread that up all the way up into the heart. We thread that up over a wire into the blood vessel that's blocked, and we position that little balloon right at the site of the blockage, and then we inflate that balloon. And what that does is that it, it pries open the blockage at the site of the blood vessel where it's blocked, and then that balloon is deflated, and it's withdrawn from the body, and then you'll see if it worked well, that, that blockage would have been essentially smushed, a little squashed open, you could say. Um, usually we don't stop there. Before we had stents, people would stop there, and that would leave you know kind of like a half, half result. Nowadays we put a stent, and what a stent is, is a metal tube. Uh, I tell patients it's kind of like the spring on the ballpoint pen that clicks, except instead of a coil, it's more like a mesh, like a chicken mesh, kind of scaffold. And that, that is collapsed down on a balloon that's deflated, positioned inside that blood vessel, right at the site of the blockage, and then the balloon is inflated, which then smushes up that stent so that it fits the blood vessel wall.
0: And it keeps it open.
1: And essentially the balloon is deflated, leaves behind that stent that's open, and that holds the blood vessel open. Absolutely.
0: So, how long does this whole process take? I mean, is it within a few minutes? Does this take a long time?
1: Uh, It it can take, depends on how difficult to fix a blockage is. In an emergency situation, like the STEMI we were talking about, oftentimes those blood vessel blockages are soft, they're fresh, they're actually blood clot more than they are cholesterol blockage. And those go really fast because we want to get open fast, you know, from the time they're in the room to the time we actually open the blood vessel, maybe 15 minutes, it it can really be that fast. Um, And that life-saving. Absolutely. As soon as the blood vessel gets open, uh, patients will feel better. Sometimes they feel a little bit, actually oftentimes they feel a bit worse before they feel better. I warn warn that to patients because it's like if your leg is asleep, let's say you sat on it funny and it was not getting no blood, most people will know when you stand up it starts really hurting for a while before you actually feel better, and that's the same. The heart does the same thing. The heart's not getting any blood as soon as you open it. People actually feel like they got all these heart rhythm problems for just for a couple minutes until the heart kind of stabilizes. Then after that, they feel the relief.
0: All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Stephen Chan from Kaiser Permanente. And we are talking today about stents versus surgery. What are the risk factors for having a heart attack? And if you're about to have one or you're having one, what should you do? Now, as always, our phone lines are available. If you've ever had a heart problem or you wound up having life-saving stents, you know, we'd love to hear your story, particularly if you called 911. And that'll help to reinforce what people ought to do. Um, You can join us at any time at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
2: People couldn't understand why Anya Clowers and her husband would take their young son with them on a trip around the world.
0: You cannot believe how many people were horrified that we would take a seven-year-old child out of school for a year. People who will discourage you from taking your kids traveling actually don't usually travel themselves.
2: Learn how to enjoy globetrotting with the kids and get inspired to try some off-season adventures on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat, I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin Big Band Classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat every Wednesday
1: night from 8 to 10 here on HPR2. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you then.
2: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributor Oceanside Hawaii Assisted Living and Memory Care.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Stephen Chan from Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about stents and heart attacks, what goes in your arteries, what doesn't, And how do you know when you should have surgery instead of having stents placed? We're talking about all things related to the heart. It's not if or when you have a blockage. It's how bad is your blockage. That's what we're learning today. Now, if you've ever had a heart attack or you've gone to a catheterization lab and had those stents placed, we'd love to hear your experience. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll free, Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. Now, right before the break, we were talking about the cath lab, Dr. Chan, and we were talking about what you can do to put in a stent into this artery, hopefully help when somebody's having a heart attack to no longer have those symptoms and have those sequelae, the consequences, which is heart muscle that no longer works. And that affects a lot of other areas of the body in addition to the heart. Um, Just a couple of curious questions. Can all arteries have stents, or are some not able to have a stent because of characteristics of the artery? Could you ever have something that's so twisty and turny that you just can't put one in?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. There are blood vessel blockages that cannot get stents. Namely, uh, like you said, sometimes if there's too much what we call tortuosity, meaning the vessel- It's twisty. Does, does too twisty, too twisty to fit anything in. Um, sometimes the blood vessels are too small, like if it's a small branch, uh, the smallest balloons we have go down to like one millimeter the smallest stents we have go down to about two millimeters Uh, but sometimes branches can be even smaller than that and those branches you know can't get stents if they're that small usually we say they don't need a stent because they're too small to really be of consequence
0: and if they didn't get a stent, that's probably not going to cause the rest of the heart muscle to be affected, maybe a small portion, but not the most important amount of heart muscle or area.
1: That's correct. In, 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 in all things in medicine, we always think about the risks and the benefits of what we do. And the stents are great. They have a great benefit, especially if you're one's having a heart attack, because we can restore the blood flow and get the blood moving. But in patients who aren't having a heart attack, let's say, and they have a blockage, then stents may not necessarily be the best thing. Uh, if someone's feeling completely well and they have blockages that are not that severe, let's say it's back to the H1 is down only, you know, four lanes instead of five lanes, that's really not a severe enough blockage to warrant a stent because it's not causing any major problems. Uh, in, in fact, you know, I tell patients getting a stent is not necessarily the cure-all. There are risks involved with getting a stent. Uh, the most important um, message I would say is if anyone who's had a stent, it's very important to take care of that stent. And how you take care of that stent is by taking the medications that go along with that stent uh, religiously. Uh, the stent, I tell all my patients, is made of metal. So it's a foreign object. When it goes in, your body is not going to like it initially. It's going to want to attack it and reject it. So we have to give you some blood thinners to help prevent your blood from clotting off that stent. And you know one of those blood thinners is aspirin. Another of those blood thinners was Know, traditionally called Plavix or Clopidogrel, and now there's different types that we can give as well. Uh, you know, I really tell patients sometimes if you even skip or miss one day of your medications after you get a brand new stent, there is always a risk your body and your blood could clot off that stent and cause a heart attack. So
0: Even bigger than yeah, even bigger the blockage you had to begin with because now it's 100% blocked with the blood clot.
1: Correct. That's exactly right, in which case it would have been better just to have left that blood vessel alone. And sometimes with good, you know, regular exercise, good diet, good medications, and you know a statin-type medication, which you covered on one of your previous shows, those blockages can sometimes get better on their own without needing a stent, and that kind of, quote-unquote, more natural way uh, can be safer.
0: All right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Adam calling in from Honolulu. Adam, welcome to The Body Show.
2: Hi. Thank you, doctors. Um, I had a question not specifically about stents, but actually about atrial fibrillation, um, My uh, grandfather has atrial fibrillation, and my father also has had it for a while. Um, He's been cardioverted uh, countless times and has also undergone two ablation procedures that have not been successful. Um, And uh, just a few years ago, I had my first episode of atrial fibrillation, but uh, the cardioversion worked and uh, have been okay so far. But um, I'm certainly concerned about whether atrial fibrillation would increase the chances of heart attack, um, particularly if it's not controlled very well, or what is the relationship there?
0: That's a great question, Adam. Dr. Chen?
1: Uh, yes, I, I would say that the atrial fibrillation is a heart rhythm problem. Uh, you know, I think tell t- t- patients, the heart is like a house. It has both an electrical system and a plumbing system. They are not necessarily... Inter- they are interrelated in some ways, but they're actually kind of separate in other ways. So the short answer to your question would be, I don't think an atrial fibrillation can cause a blood vessel blockage in the sense that we're talking about in terms of a heart attack. But it can cause problems if it does go too fast in causing too much stress on the heart. And sometimes if the heart goes too fast, like atrial fibrillation, you can get the heart above rates that are physiologic. You can be going like 160, 170 beats per minute, which is more than you know most people get even when they're exercising. And, and sure. if, if that's a sustained level for a prolonged period of time then the heart can get damaged in a sense it can get weaker It can get what we call a tachycardia mediated cardiomyopathy which means it just gets weaker from being going too fast i, I tell patients it's like a car you put it in neutral you put the gas pedal all the way down and you rev it for long enough that car engine is going to tire out and that's the same thing for the heart so it can cause you know heart weakening or maybe heart attacks in that way but it's not. But atrial fibrillation, in a sense, is not going to cause a blockage to form in the blood vessels, like a cholesterol plaque would, which is the traditional way um, that blood vessels get blockages. There is one other thing that atrial fibrillation can do, though, and that is have blood clots in- form inside the atrium, or the, what we call the left atrial appendage. Uh, that so, if someone has atrial fibrillation, always, you know, we we look at their risk for a stroke or blood clots, and depending on what your risk is based on other factors like your age or your other medical conditions we may recommend a blood thinner such as warfarin um, or if you don't need it could be a, a simpler blood thinner like an aspirin because i have seen some patients who really should have been on warfarin not on warfarin and they get a blood clot that goes not to the brain but to the heart and causes a heart attack so i guess in that way you know you could get a blood clot from your atrial fibrillation going into your heart causing a heart attack
0: all I right, Adam. Thank
1: you. That was a great answer. Thank you very much.
0: It was a really good question. I appreciate the, the question because, you know, I think when we hear about the heart doing this electrical dance, this going really fast. We often hear about blockages, uh, not blockages, I'm sorry, we hear about blood clots that are forming, and they could go to the brain or the rest of the body. And often we don't think about it going to the coronary arteries, to those arteries, to the heart. So instead of the artery developing a blockage within itself, it comes from somewhere else, and that's the concern.
1: Yeah, I mean, just as as an anecdote, actually just this past week, I did a procedure on a gentleman, had a small, very tiny, small, tiny heart attack about several years ago, and it was a little blockage too, like, too far down the blood vessel to fix with a stent, and so we didn't fix it back then, and they came back just this past week with the same thing, and when we took a look at the, at the angiogram or the, the, the cath procedure in the cath lab, he had a brand new blockage, tiny little blockage in another little branch, but the first branch blockage was gone. So And his story was that he did have atrial fibrillation, and he actually had stopped his warfarin because he wasn't taking it correctly, and so they decided to stop it about a, a year ago. And in retrospect, we figured it out that it was because these little blockages were, were little clots that were being thrown from his atrial fibrillation into his blood vessels.
0: And that just goes along with why people with atrial fibrillation really need to seriously consider blood thinners. And there are certain procedures, we talked a little bit earlier in the month about doing different procedures to try and block off that left atrial appendage a little bit. But regardless of that, if you have fibrillation and you're told to take a blood thinner, I know you might see bruising and I know you're tired of seeing all of these these bruise marks on your arms or you're tired of bleeding a lot whenever you get some minor kind of a scrape, but it can be life-saving.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the stroke for atrial fibrillation, I know that's not necessarily our topic today, but that's important thing. The stroke is really the most serious thing for atrial fibrillation. All these ablation procedures are good for helping symptoms if someone doesn't feel well with their atrial fibrillation, but those really don't underlie, address the underlying stroke risk. That really involves either those occluder devices or the anticoagulation.
0: Sure. My own mother had AFib for years and she went through, unfortunately, this time when she wasn't taking her medication correctly and her level went low. And she had one of those massive strokes, the kind that causes half body paralyzed. And that's been the case for the last seven or more years. So I've seen it, literally seen it. And that's a lot of people, you know, that's their worst case scenario. They can handle it if they have a problem. And it happens to be their number is up. But if they are here on this planet, and they require 24 hour care, feeding tubes, or can never live independently. Every time I talk with my patients, they say, I never want to be a burden either to my friends, my family, society, etc. And if there's something you can do to prevent that, it's Take your medication correctly. For AFib, it's to take your blood thinners. For problems with heart blockages and ischemia, it's take your medication for your cholesterol, for your blood pressure, for your diabetes. Once you become a heart patient, that has to be your mission to make sure that that's your priority and your focus.
1: Yes, I I would say if I were to emphasize one message for all the listeners, especially with heart problems, uh, it would be preventive care, especially after you've had a known problem. If you have, so we've had you know all too often patients with heart attacks come in get fixed with a stent and they think they're fixed and then they do exactly what they used to do before their stent and they come back you know a year or two later with a new blockage and I was like what's happened you know what happened? how did you come you' back with another blockage well you know i I still eat the same way, I didn't exercise the same you know same way I didn't take my medications this way um a lot of these times uh the second episode could be prevented by essentially doing. The medications that are recommended because medications that we recommend are well proven. You know, the aspirin and the Plavix type medications for the blood thinners, well proven to help prevent your blood from clotting off a stent. You know, the statin medications have been dramatically and repeatedly proven to lower the risk of a heart attack, Just and by, strokes and strokes too, absolutely. Um, and there are other classes of medications as well, but they all help. Smoking again, I, I mentioned this in the very beginning. You know, some patients they even get like a bypass surgery or a stent, and they they have. Pl- you know, comes back several several years later plugged up, they're still smoking. It's like almost, I tell patients almost guaranteed if they're smoking at the time of their heart attack, if they don't quit, I say, I'm going to see you again in several years with another heart attack unless you quit smoking.
0: Now, let's talk just briefly about the consequences of a heart attack. Part of the problem that we have is that if you start to lose some of that heart muscle, and the muscle dies. You can't revive it. You can't bring it back. So there's this concept that that I know you're very familiar with in medicine. And it has to do with how much blood your heart has to pump out with each beat. And you don't want to pump all the blood out because that would mean you've created a vacuum and that's not good. But you want to pump out a certain amount. And we call that the ejection fraction. And that kind of tells us, is your heart healthy or not? A normal healthy ejection fraction, 55 65% is really good. And your heart fills with blood again and you pump more out. But one of the things we're trying to avoid in putting in stents and in doing all the variety of procedures you do, is having people have damage to their heart muscle where it dies and it doesn't pump out as much blood. That's one of the consequences we're trying to avoid. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. The whole reason we don't like heart attacks is because heart attack, by definition, is heart muscle damage. And everyone, unlike other parts of the body, like skin that can heal and regrow, uh, or liver that can heal and regrow, the heart doesn't. Somehow the human heart cannot regrow itself. At least we haven't figured out any ways to do that. So every time a heart attack happens and some heart muscle dies, that heart muscle is unfortunately gone pretty gone much forever. forever. That's and it. And the only thing that can happen is that the rest of the heart that still is alive can sometimes remodel and help compensate to make up for that loss of the heart muscle. But the heart muscle that's gone is really not ever regeneratable. Um, it's gone forever. And that's it. It's gone forever. So people with You know, a small heart attack at one point, you know, the ejection fraction, like you said, the amount the heart can still squeeze out with each beat, might still be okay, but might be just a little bit lower than it had been before the heart attack. But if they have another heart attack a couple years later, then you took another little chip away from the heart, and another heart attack later could chip away at the heart some more. And gradually, you know, if the heart keeps losing its strength, at some point it won't be strong enough to pump the blood. And what happens then is that then the blood can black up behind the heart, is the lungs. And most people will feel symptoms of shortness of breath if the heart is not pumping strong enough. Uh, they'll, they'll get the blood backing up to the lungs that causing fluid to essentially ooze out into the lungs and cause shortness of breath. Behind the lungs would be the legs, they're the bodies. And people will start saying, I have leg swelling. And that's because the blood is backing up because it's not strong enough to push. And, and that is what we don't want to happen. That's called congestive heart failure. And we're trying to avoid that by treating the heart attacks.
0: Sure, because th- there's different levels of congestive heart failure. And there are levels at which we can't do anything uh,
1: yes, except for we heart can't trans- fix it heart we can do heart
0: transplant, <laughs> yeah. okay, and if you're not lucky enough to get one of those, then you may not be with us much longer.
1: yes, it's well known that the um, call it mortality, I mean not to not be morbid, morbid, but the heart at a certain point below which it's weak, and we call that ejection fraction of really thirty five percent traditionally, people are at risk for increased chance of death from. Abnormal heart rhythms, actually something we call arrhythmias, um, and that can also be potentially prevented. And that's you know another topic, uh, but that's in the realm of what we call electrophysiology, which just talks about electrical circuitry. And people can get a, get a fancy pacemaker type device called a defibrillator, like you were talking about the um, AEDs, the ar- sure automat- the CPR, CPR side device, outside, yeah, mm-hmm. But instead, people can implant that into the heart if someone's at high risk for having one of these sudden death arrhythmias. Uh, because of their heart is weak, they can implant one of these ICDs, uh, implantable cardio uh, cardioverter defibrillators, I think it's called, um, and that will monitor the heart for any abnormal heart rhythms that could be fatal, and essentially do the zap, do the. It'll version. do the
0: shocking, but it still won't make the heart pump stronger because at a certain point we can't. When you get down to ten to fifteen percent, we've got some serious issues.
1: Absolutely, All right. absolutely.
0: I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Stephen Chan from Kaiser Permanente. And we're talking today about stents and surgery. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about can you have surgery after stents? Can you stent into where you had surgery? And how many stents is just too many? And if you've got some questions and you'd like to know, you can join us. 941-3689, Toll Free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
2: Hi, my name is George Nellis. I'm with Piano Planet, Hawaii's exclusive Steinway dealer. We're not as concerned about the return on investment. We want to be associated with quality programming more than, oh boy, I hope I get my return back. I think we just want to give what we can, what we can afford to give, and what a better way.
0: Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community.
2: Super Tuesday is big.
0: A huge portion of delegates is up for grabs.
2: Thirteen states will decide.
0: Plus, American Samoa and Americans abroad.
2: So, can Donald Trump be stopped?
0: Will Hillary Clinton hold on to her lead?
2: I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm
0: Rachel Martin. Join us tomorrow to find out who wins and what it all means.
2: Live elections coverage from NPR News. Coverage begins tomorrow afternoon at 3 on HPR 1. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Stephen Chan from Kaiser Permanente, and we're talking today about coronary artery disease, those really important arteries that go to your heart that keep us alive and what happens when they get blocked. And we've talked so far about going into the emergency room, having blockages versus blood slow or blood flow slowing in that area, and we've talked about what happens when you put in a stent. Now I've got some curious questions for you, Dr. Chan. Can you, how many, is there ever a point where you just can't do any more stents? Is there ever too many stents? Uh,
1: The short answer to that question is no. Unfortunately, there is no limit to the number of stents one can get. And, you know, just anecdotally, I think the person with the most stents that I've experienced has been in the dozens of stents. And, you know, how can someone get dozens of stents if there's only three main blood vessels in the heart? Um, And what happens sometimes is that people can be prone to getting blockages coming back. And sometimes you put a stent in, and the blockage comes back. And then put another stent in, and the blockage comes back in a different spot. And then you put another stent in a different spot. Um,
0: so you'd never stent an area you stented?
1: You can stent the same area you've stented you over can and over and over and re-stent. over again.
0: You can stent and stent.
1: You can stent inside the stent. People will ask, well, what about the stent that got blocked up? Can you take out that stent and put a new one in? No, you can't take them out. You can't take them out. Once the stent's in, they're in there for life. But what we can do is essentially put in a new stent inside the old stent kind of like a sandwich stent we'll say and there's really no limit to how many times you do that except for the size of the blood vessel because at some point that blood vessel is not going to have any room for any more stents Um, you know clearly we don't like to do that many stents Um, by the time we get to you know the third time you send it the same spot we would say you got to do some different we got to try something different and at that point we, we will probably say do the bypass surgery you know try a bypass surgery instead um, the patients who get the dozens of stents are those who we tried the bypass surgery and somehow they blocked up their bypasses too and then you're back to stenting either you know, the stents or the bypasses just to try to get things open.
0: So just to clarify, if you've had bypass surgery, now sometimes they use arterial grafts. There's a nice artery that's in the front part of the chest called the left internal mammary artery, the lima, and so that can form a really nice graft for the heart. You can get that radial artery where we talked about checking the pulse. That can also do it, but then people often use vein grafts from the legs, and they can put those into the heart to sort of get around a blockage area. You can put stents in all of those.
1: Absolutely. So stents, and sometimes you have to. Sometimes we have to. In fact, just this morning, there's a gentleman who had a bypass surgery like a decade ago. And the problem with bypass grafts, like the one, the Lima graft the, from the, the left internal mammary artery that you talked about is actually great. That lasts the longest. But unfortunately, the vein grafts from the legs, they don't really last that long. Sometimes they, you know, the expected lifespan of one of those is maybe 10 to 20 years at most. Um, this this fellow's vein graft was about 10, 15 years old, and there was a new blockage in it, essentially, and that's sometimes what we see as a natural course of the disease. Uh, you know, At that point, you have to decide, do we get another bypass surgery or do we put a stent in it? And it kind of depends on how many of the bypass grafts are still working. Fortunately, in this gentleman, out of the four bypass grafts, this was really the only blockage, so it was not worth doing a whole another bypass surgery for him, and that's why we just put a stent in one of the bypass grafts that was blocked uh, to fix that.
0: And you just did that, what, today?
1: That was just this morning, yes.
0: Wow. All right. Thanks for coming on after doing all that this morning, saving lives, etc. Okay, we've got Ken on the line from Kalihi. Ken, welcome to The Body Show.
2: Hi. Thank you very much. I'm well familiar with the cath lab out at Kaiser, Moana Lua. have been in there twice and gotten five five stamps total, I think. But the main reason I'm calling is I, I just read a book called The Heart Healers. A history of the treatment of heart disease and the technologies and techniques and the people who developed them and invented them and it's a fascinating and very dramatic book very very interesting I thought uh, listeners might want to look for that at the library I wish I could remember the author's name but it's the heart healers
0: you have intrigued me Ken I love to read books like that
2: yeah it's got medical mysteries in it too I love medical mysteries. (laughs) And yeah, you'll you'll like this book. It's brand new. The guy who wrote it is he's out east somewhere. He's a real, uh, real prominent heart surgeon, and
0: uh, we will look it's just that a one up. Very, Ken.
2: very good book.
0: All right, now let me ask you something. You've been to the cath lab uh, more times than you might want, but when you've had the stents placed and you've kind of gone on about your daily routine did you notice what did you notice is anything different prior to your stent versus after did you have a change in your energy level did you feel just a little bit stronger what what did you notice
2: i noticed i know i got the stent because when i was exercising i had angina i had a pain pain shooting up my left arm and going down toward my chest and uh i got the the first two stents placed and after that, no more pain. Pain is gone. And I had angina again a couple years later and he placed two stents in different location. And again the pain the angina is gone. And it's interesting, I think the, the angina from the first location it never came has not come back. And and now I'm pain free now. I didn't notice change in energy level, anything like that. But I exercise pretty strenuously, and I'm happy to be able to continue to do that.
0: Fantastic. All right, Ken. Well, I appreciate you you sharing your story with us. And, you know, it's interesting because although you might not feel more energy, it's a lot less stressful when you don't feel that chest pain you were describing, particularly with activity. So good job for you. And while we were hearing your experience, we also found that The Heart Healers was written by James Forrester. And I got to tell you, I'm going to Go to Barnes & Noble and pick that one up or uh, or get it off of Amazon or something because I love medical mysteries, too. They were always really fun to read about. And just to hear that historical change, you know, the way, Dr. Chen, the way we treat heart disease, like a 100 years ago, that was it. You have a heart attack. We really can't do much. 50 years ago, maybe a big surgery. Stents have not been around forever. This has been a more modern evolution. And the initial stents, which were bare metal stents, we now have these stents with medicine embedded in them. They're called drug-eluting stents. And eventually, maybe we'll come up with, you know, they have those absorbable stitches. Maybe we'll have absorbable stents. And and who knows what we'll come up with next.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly. There actually are some trials going on testing bioabsorbable stents. And, you know, the evidence is not, you know, the verdict's not out yet. They're still undergoing trials. But there's definitely been a lot of advances in cardiology. And, you know, you know, ideally the best situation would be to put myself out of a job, which is to have people not have blockages at all. If you could take some sort of magic pill and dissolve your blockages. I would take be, it
0: right now. <laughs> yeah. Based on what I ate for lunch, I would take it now. Okay, so magic pill. We don't have it yet but stay on the medicines that you are taking. Now, let's talk a little bit about that that decision point because at some point, if you're in the catheterization lab, and you are checking someone's arteries because maybe they didn't do so well with a stress test. So they're not the person who has the completely blocked H1. They don't have no blood flow. So you've got a little bit of time to figure out what the next best step is. There are certain key elements that make someone more likely to be referred for bypass surgery, open heart surgery, to actually go around the native arteries and form these, these bypasses, literally this channel to bring blood flow to the portions of the heart that are not getting enough. What are some of the key features that would make someone have the need for bypass as opposed to some of the stents that you're so willing and able to put
1: in? Uh, The main criteria traditionally has been essentially the number and complexity of the blockages. So like I mentioned earlier, the heart has three main blood vessels. Uh, If all three are blocked and if they're all blocked in complicated manners, like twisty blood vessels or branches and things like that, then... Almost certainly, the cardiologist will say, let's go for the bypass surgery because you can fix that all with one surgery, whereas with stents, you'd have to come back several times and get probably you know, one stent for each blockage if at least, if not several, um, which tend to be more complicated. Um, and it could be risky. And it could be risky, right. And diabetes is the other thing we look at. Someone who has diabetes, uh, the studies have shown that the people who have diabetes do better long-term um, it, it, you know, there's some controversy still, but it, the historically has, they've done better long term with the bypass surgery over the stents. Um, you know, that being said, the stents keep getting better. So as interventionalists, we keep wondering, you know, at some point will the stents improve to such a way that the, bi- the stents can be equivalent or better than bypass surgery? But right now, at least the evidence that's out there still gives a little bit of edge to bypass surgery for those with diabetics, and I think that's partly because diabetics. The, the diabetes tends to affect all the blood vessels. So the whole length of the blood vessel in the heart, um, even though you have one blockage, really the rest of the heart blood vessel is not completely normal either. So even if with a stent you fixed one part in a diabetic vessel, that doesn't mean later on another part of that blood vessel might not develop a new blockage. Whereas if you put a bypass on, that's a brand new bypass, and that's hopefully going to not develop a new blockage for longer.
0: All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Stephen Chan. And if you have a question about whether or not you need to do something for your heart, hey, here is your chance. I mean, talk about having an opportunity to ask an expert. Dr. Chan, you saved some lives today. You put in some some stents already today in folks, particularly those who had bypass already and if you want to talk with him and have a question now's your chance man it's 941-3689 toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689 now tell me we heard from adam earlier he mentioned atrial fibrillation in his family we heard from ken he mentioned he's had stents if people have a family history of a lot of the people in their family having issues with blockages and needing either surgery or multiple stents, is there a genetic component that could be transferred from family member to family member?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I think a lot of things in medicine and diseases are unfortunately inheritable in terms of at least predisposition. Meaning even though you might have the genes that predispose you to having some blockage in the future. um,
0: You could fight against it. You
1: could still fight against it, exactly. And so that's where if someone comes in and they've had you know, their father, their brother, their uncle—they all have heart disease—then I, I would tell them, "Well, we better be sure to first of all check, give you a good checkup, and second of all, let's do everything we can, even if you pass the checkup, to prevent, you know, having future problems." Because, like I said earlier, it's, it's not whether you end up with blockages or not; it's how bad are the blockages? Because yeah. it's it,
0: not if or when; it's how bad.
1: Exactly. Because, I, like I say, I treat everybody assuming you have blockage. It's just we don't want those blockages to get bad enough to cause a heart attack or cause angina.
0: Now, if you saw somebody who had uh, a blockage of like 70 80% and they were not having symptoms, would they be somebody who might want to have a stent placed? Or do we really wait until they have symptoms related to that?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, in the old days, we interventional cardiologists used to have what we call the oculostenotic reflex, which is, we'd say, we kind of laugh and say, if we see a blockage, we should fix it. All blockages should be fixed. But that's actually turned out to not necessarily be true. Uh, there have been some recent studies coming out, something called the COURAGE trial, uh, which suggests that stents might not actually be any better than preventive medications for people who have what we call stable you know, heart disease or stable symptoms. So in someone who, say, has even angina when they exercise, sometimes we can control and treat that with medications. Um, you know, the aspirin, the statin, something called a beta blocker, something called a nitrate, different classes of medications can actually help the heart compensate. And, and, and the truth is that um, sometimes that is better as a first line, especially if there's only just a single blockage. Uh, the caveats I would say would be that that blockage would not have to be a critical location If it's what we call the left main artery or the proximal LED, that needs to get fixed. That should not be left alone. But if it's in a branch blockage or it's in a secondary blood vessel, and really if the patient is not having problems, then I actually would not recommend a stent because, like I said, stents are not benign things. You put a stent in, if it's not well taken care of, if the patient is not taking their blood thinners correctly, that stent can actually plug, plug up and cause a heart attack that is more serious than the initial blockage itself. So if someone is really feeling well, if they have a blockage, I would probably put them on a treadmill. Stress test the heart to see how much problem it's causing. If it's causing a small problem or if it doesn't even show up on a treadmill test as a problem, then I probably would not fix it. I would say, let's just treat you with medications first and see how you do.
0: And work on lifestyle, work on exercise, work on diet, work really hard to try and modify your chances of having another event.
1: Absolutely. In fact, there's a, there's a whole realm of I don't know if you want to call it research, but something called the appropriate use criteria. A whole bunch of scrutiny over what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And people would actually say that if someone feels completely well, they exercise regularly, they don't have any problems, that blockage really shouldn't be fixed unless it's causing some sort of objective problem.
0: All right. We've got a couple of callers. We've got David from Wilhelmina Rise. David, welcome to the body show. Hello. Hello, David.
2: Hi. Hey, I had a quick question. Sure. Uh, 52 years old, aortic valve, uh, leak, no stenosis, um, uh, mild, uh, moderate to uh, uh, severe leak, um, borderline hypertrophy on the left ventricle.
0: Would I be able to feel any symptoms at this point? Symptoms of a heart attack?
2: No, no, no. Symptoms uh, symptoms of uh, any, any kind of symptoms, I guess. Uh, ejection fraction is normal and all that. I'm wondering, would I be feeling tired or weak or... I, I, I uh, sometimes feel like I, I, I sense those symptoms, but I don't
1: know if it's uh, psychosomatic or uh, if I would be. It's Dr. Chan here. How, how bad did you say the leakage was?
2: It, it, uh, some doctors say moderate. Some say moderate to severe. No one said severe, though. Moderate to moderate severe.
1: Uh, and this is one of those situations where the details really matter because the difference between moderate and severe can sometimes be subjective and also depends upon the various... Um, situations like your blood pressure and, and, and how the test is actually done. Uh, clearly, if the leakage is severe, then the answer is yes, you can feel symptoms. Some people, even with a normal ejection fraction, can get symptoms of shortness of breath and fatigue from the heart valve, at which point it would be recommended to get it fixed. Um, that being said, if it, the numbers on the actual, you know, the way we usually test is both an echocardiogram, the ultrasound of the heart, if those numbers showed that it was really just moderate and not severe, then that should not be causing you problems because moderate by itself should not be bad enough to warrant an open-heart surgery to fix the heart valve. It sounds like you've got, you're kind of in, in, between, in between category. You're moderate to severe. So that's where it's a little bit hard. Um, most doctors would recommend that you get a regular checkup. Every six to 12 months, we get another echocardiogram, and those echocardiograms would look for signs of problems, the heart getting weaker or the heart getting bigger dilation of the heart is a sign that the heart is getting weaker or having troubles with the regurgitation. Um, and the third thing really is symptoms. And symptoms, unfortunately, is very subjective, especially if someone has, say, asthma or some lung problem concomitantly. You don't know if that's from the lungs or just from, you know, age or from your heart. And, and that unfortunately is a hard uh, thing to make a decision on.
0: Well, and the good news is for David that, you know, David, if you have those frequent tests done, the echocardiogram, they look at your heart muscle, they look at the ejection fraction, they look at all those criteria. Even if you're not certain about your symptoms, there's something else the decision could be based on. So do keep following up with your with your heart doctors because it sounds like they're keeping a close watch on it and they might be able to help you out significantly and let you know when the time is that you need to do something more aggressive about it. All right, we have just got about... Eight, uh, we were in our last guy, Steve from Waikiki. We were going to try and sneak you in, but more time for me, Dr. Chan. So, you know, when we have people who have these episodes of heart problems, I'm curious if you have blockages and you have them treated with stents, how realistic is it that you can transform your life, work on if it's quitting smoking, doing more exercise, etc.? Do you see a lot of success stories? In your practice, in people who you don't see multiple times again, who really do take good care of their heart, and they don't progress to needing bypass surgery. Is oh. that the majority?
1: Uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't say it's a majority, but it does happen.
0: Fifty-fifty. 50-50?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Actually I actually have have numbers. Unfortunately. Like on an average, yeah, I, I guess you could say 50 okay. 50. That, that, that would be a very rough guess. But okay. there, there, definitely are patients who become very motivated. Like the, the heart it would attack.
0: motivate me if I had a heart attack. I think I would finally be like, that's it. Oh, absolutely! I'm going to exercise patients, all the time. Exactly. I'm going to walk to work. Oh my god! They,
1: okay, They quit smoking. They go almost like vegetarian. You know, they're walking every day at least half an hour. You know, they're taking all their medications like they should. Uh, you know. I've seen some patients really become motivated because they really don't want to end up back in the cardiac cath lab with another stent.
0: I mean, it's not that you don't do a great job. It's just they'd really rather not be there again.
1: They'd rather not be there and again.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, you know, in general, if you think you're having a heart attack, call 911. If you are taken to the cath lab and you have stents, those can open up your arteries, but it does not change the fact that you need to not go back to what you were doing that got you there to begin with. Absolutely. All right. And take your medicine. You've been really emphatic about that.
1: Uh, Absolutely. All too often, I mean, I I kind of feel like an artist sometimes, you go and you fix something, you do a great job opening the blood vessels, and it comes back plugged up, and it's very disappointing to see it plugged up again.
0: Sure. Disappointing for you, but also just to know that somebody doesn't have that opportunity to do as much as they can to take care of it and maybe they need some extra help and so it's never too late there's always extra help for you and I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today here on the body show
1: oh thanks it was a pleasure
0: we'll have to do it again all right if you want to hear this show again you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org follow the links to the body show you can hear our podcast our engineer is David Chong our executive producer Beth Ann Kozlovich I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak we are going to see you next week we're going to pick up a topic other than heart disease for March we'll We'll see you Monday right here on The Body Show.